1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've had loads of questions from around the world as well as across the UK. Hundreds, actually. Uh, unsurprisingly, probably, given the what's going on. Welcome to uh, Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. We've got tons to cram in together, in our time together, as we always do. I mean, since we all last gathered, kuateng has been sacked. We've got a new chancellor who uh, argues for an entirely different economic policy. The mini-budget, so-called, it must be go down as the most famous mini-budget ever, has been scrapped, and there is inevitable speculation about how long trusts can survive. It is One of the most bizarre situations uh, in politics in a very competitive field. The last 12 years has given us um, constant contortions and weirdnesses and dramas, especially the period since Brexit. And you sense that Brexit is a root. It's very interesting, you know, there's very few iron laws in politics, but one of them is this accident-prone governments don't become accident-prone by accident. There are always deep roots. Anyway, if it's all right with all of you, I'll reflect on some of the deep roots and the implications, as well as it's quite dangerous analysing the immediate because the immediate changes so quickly. So by the time I finish... Uh, recording the podcast you, you know who knows what will have happened and um, then by the time you all listen and reflect and take part in one way or another it could have all changed again but i'll try and do as much of that as possible some uh, very quick uh, notices what a time for the live shows uh there's one uh, live at king's place on october the 26th formal announcement it was going to be uh, the sequel liz Truss the special part two it probably now becomes jeremy hunt the special uh because because he is now the most powerful figure in the government. And who knows who will be the most powerful figure in the government by October the 26th. Then the following day at the Great Rope Tackle uh, Art Centre in Shoreham, And as I mentioned uh, last week, I'm really excited that on December the 12th, uh, for the first time at the Old Market Theatre in Brighton, Rock and Roll Politics Christmas Special. So yeah, uh, all tickets are on sale for all those. And please come along because these are epic times and they lend themselves to live events which will change at the last moment depending on what's going on. No danger of structuring them too far in advance. Uh, So will it be... (laughs) <laughs> a Liz Truss special, a Jeremy Hunt special, the Resurrection of Sunak special. Anyway, we need to gather to make sense of it all. And thank you for those of you subscribing to Patreon. I'm going to read uh, a few names out at the end of those kindly subscribing, and all of those in the end will get a name check. And I hope you enjoyed, uh, it arrived last week on Patreon, uh, the first of a new series um, <laughs> pegged, in a way, to that catastrophic Kwa budget, government cock-ups, and the first one is on the uh, poll tax, um, which I think really challenges the revisionism around Margaret Thatcher, that she was always sort of forensic and um, unlike the current lot, careful and cautious. Not towards the end, she wasn't. Um, And the poll tax, although it made sense on some levels, and had deep, deep roots, like the trust crisis, was part of a trio of reforms highlighted in uh, the poll tax episode that showed she could be as impulsive and reckless and not thinking through the consequences of some of the Tory prime ministers that have caused havoc in recent times. Uh, Anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy that. And um, yeah, that, that period now seems like ancient history. But actually, it was very interesting. I was doing a discussion on The week in Westminster on Radio 4 on Saturday. And we were with a panel, kind of, we kind of rooted the modern day Tory party with the kind of Thatcher era of the 80s. It's when the party changed and became much more ideological. That has deepened over the years. So, where are we uh, with the Truss drama? The juxtaposition of uh, Truss and Hunt. Let's put them in checkers when they met at the weekend uh, to decide on junking every element virtually of the mini budget. Is almost cinematic. You could set a play around it, Uh, the two of them meeting in checkers or with Hunt making a statement to the House of Commons and her sitting next to him hearing her entire vision being junked, her entire sense of political purpose. But inevitably, as I record this anyway, she clings to power. All prime ministers cling to power, especially new ones. It tells you something about the intoxicating nature of power that they do so. I was very struck when I wrote my book on prime ministers that even when they became miserable, as most do, most become miserable and neurotic and paranoid about colleagues, the media and all the rest of it, it doesn't cross their mind to leave. It reminds me of that Woody Allen joke in Annie Hall. The food in this restaurant is terrible and the portions are so small. You know, they all get, they they all think, oh my God, what another dire day ahead. And yet, on one level, they love it. And Trust, stripped of her purpose and mission and humiliated in in ways that are difficult to comprehend, clings on, uh, won't go voluntarily. Because she's got there. And to get there is a thrill, even if you are surrounded by the wreckage of your early weeks of leadership. So they will have to get rid of her and move against her. And here I think it is interesting what's happening. Some Tory MPs are quite open that she should go. And as I say this, I'm very conscious that by the time you hear it, this is all she's gone, you know, but maybe not. But others are saying, no, we need to give her a bit of space. Uh, she has already indicated a willingness to change. I mean, it's absurd because it's as if she, they're saying, oh, she's shown great strength. Now, you can show great strength in changing course, but not the degree to which this is a change of course. It is a sign of total calamitous weakness. But the reason I think some Tory MPs are hesitant are twofold. One, the issue of legitimacy. The one thing above all they fear at the moment is an early general election. So there won't be one. No Conservative Prime Minister will call an election while their party is 30 points behind in the polls. It would be an act of political suicide. So it's not going to happen. But some of them think if they dump another prime minister after a month and put someone else in, the legitimacy question becomes overwhelming. So they hope instead that somehow or other, Truss can revive herself, so to speak, um, rather than face uh, the huge pressure to call a general election under a new prime minister. But the other thing is much more fundamental and interesting. It is very rare for a party to coalesce around a single candidate and it is equally rare for other potential candidates to say, oh, all right, we'll stand aside uh, and let one person take over. It has happened once in recent history and that's when, in a justifiable panic, the Tory Parliamentary Party dumped uh, Ian Duncan-Smith and replaced him uh, with Michael Howard as a coronation. And the only other figure who was thinking of standing, uh, David Davis, stepped aside and let Michael Howard take it. David Davis has always been ambiguous about leadership and office. Um, Remember when he suddenly resigned as shadow Home Secretary and held a by-election in his own seat in which he stood as a candidate. Uh, So anyway, it wasn't that difficult for David Davis to withdraw. We're not like that now. We're in a more typical situation. In my book on prime ministers we never had, I argue that one of the reasons why the likes of uh, Roy Jenkins and uh, Dennis Healy never became prime minister is because they couldn't agree with each other and people like Tony Crossland, which one of them it should be. They all wanted it and they were all willing to stand against each other in an attempt to get it. And they weren't all willing to stand aside to mount a coup together for one of them to replace Harold Wilson when they wanted to see him go. So Wilson didn't go, and none of them ever got the prime ministership. So you can see now Jeremy Hunt, Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt, all wondering whether within weeks of the last leadership contest they might be close to becoming prime minister. And so you hear talk of a Sunak-Mordant double act, but both of them will want the main role, the prime minister's role. Will one succumb, willingly, over a, a, have a cup of coffee and say, look, in the interests of the country, I'll be your deputy? Not necessarily. As I say, maybe all this is going to happen, but not necessarily. And similarly with Tory MPs. Uh, It's easy to forget now, but there were a group of these Tory MPs, the likes of John Redwood, who supported that mini-budget, who regarded it as the natural uh, consequence of Brexit. You would have a hard Brexit negotiated by Lord Frosty Frost, and that would then require Britain to be a low-tax small-state country, of which the mini-budget was the first revolutionary move. So they're not going to be thrilled at the idea of Sunak or Hunt taking over I mean, they've got to adapt to Hunt becoming Chancellor, but then to have a Prime Minister who uh, challenges their view of the world, even though their view of the world has been challenged by reality, will be hard for them to contemplate. These things are far from straightforward. A parliamentary party can conclude that Truss is a disaster, but not all agree with each other on who should replace her or how. And so, I mean, clearly there are going to be manoeuvrings along these lines. I wonder if there is a bit of market stability secured by uh, Hunt's statement that uh, virtually the whole mini-budget is dumped and he's going to announce public spending constraints in a couple of weeks' time. Maybe that gives her space, but I'm very conscious again as I utter those words uh, that the space might have already dried up. I suspect she is in the position now, Truss, where... Everything she says and does is a test, and if she fails it, uh, the trouble around her deepens. In other words, Prime Minister's questions becomes a huge test each week. If she survives weeks, her meetings with MPs privately becomes a huge test. So, for example, I saw last week, I think I said it in the podcast, uh, the Prime Minister's questions of last week and her meeting with the Parliamentary Party were tests, she failed both, and her crisis deepened. And so has she the capacity, I doubt it, to uh, rise to these uh, very, uh, I mean, there the, 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 are almost impossible challenges for her, because you need to be a combination of Clinton, Obama, and God knows who in terms of oratorical skills to present what has happened in a way that uh, secures your place. Because what has happened has been, it's a cliche, without precedent. What I think is depressing about all of this is that when there are economic crises like this, the state gets smaller in Britain. There is no discussion note for saying, I mean, Hunter said there will be some tax rises as well but it's only to reassure the markets. Uh, There is no attempt to say in these situations perhaps the whole prescription was wrong and that there is an alternative route. In other words, the reason for Britain's dire productivity and low growth rates are to do... It's obvious businesses have been screaming out about it. Labour shortages, lack of investment in public services and infrastructure... Businesses don't invest in some parts of the country because there's no decent transport, no kind of modern infrastructure, because public spending is lower here than it is in Germany and France and all these countries where productivity and growth are higher. Um, And you always dare to hope in these crises that there is a rethink um, about the way British economic policy evolves. But there are a rethink, and it tends to be towards a smaller state, lower public spending. And if there are tax rises, it's to uh, balance the books. And so the crises of labour shortages, uh, rubbish public transport in parts of the country, and very expensive public transport where it does work in places like London. And then the health service, you know, it is on its knees. And uh, the focus is on spending cuts. And the problem for Labour is finding any space in a pre-election period to put the case for taxes to pay for public services. It is almost impossible in the British media culture to do it. Um, They did it famously in power last time, Labour, and it was really interesting. They agonised about it, putting up national insurance to pay for increases in spending on the health service. But when they did it, It was the most popular budget um, of uh, modern history. To their disappointment, the Sunday Telegraph commissioned a poll to find that the tax rise was extremely popular. But it's easier to do in power than out for Labour in opposition. However, they need to leave the space in everything they say and do to raise taxes, to improve public services. There is a link between the two. Of course, you can talk about reform and technology, in that uh, vague way that Tony Blair does. And they are important, but they don't pay for doctors, nurses. They don't build the infrastructure so you have decent trains from Manchester, Leeds and Liverpool across the country. And and that's what gets businesses in well qualified staff available to work and then to get into work and to transport goods. And then of course the other thing, talk about transporting goods and labour, is the hard Brexit is well Brexit is coming home to roost. We live in a surreal place where it's still not mentioned very much, but it's at the heart of everything. The Conservative Party did not know what they were doing from the moment that referendum was called, let alone lost. And the consequences are being played out in all kinds of different ways. So this really, I mean, the focus on growth is fascinating because Brexit was not really about growth. All the government forecasts suggested, wholly accurately as it's turning out, a drop in GDP of four to five percent. And with uh, Lord Frosty Frost's Brexit, uh, some forecasts went higher still. And it's all being played out. It was called Project Fear or whatever, but it's all being played out. Uh, and yet there is this focus on growth. The Anti-Growth Alliance, uh, so-called by uh, El Truss, Anti-Growth Coalition, of which we're all a part because of our interest in podcasts, etc. The real Anti-Growth Coalition are those who backed Brexit. And Froster said oh, it wasn't about growth, it was about freedom. Without, you know, He never defines what he means by freedom. So that's the depressing side. But here is the upside to what has happened. It seems to me that the Brexit fantasists have finally got their comeuppance. Because while it went badly wrong under Johnson, they could argue, oh, it's, it was the wrong economic policy. You know, it's not tax and spend with Brexit. We need to be like Singapore on Thames, low taxes. Here was Truss and Kwarteng implementing that vision to the huge cheers of the hard Brexiteers. Lord Frosty Frost could hardly contain his excitement. The mail front page, at last a Tory budget. Uh, The Telegraph was even more excited by that budget. And off they went onto the airwaves, all these people, Mark Littlewood from the Institute of Economic Affairs and all these uh, people. They should be discredited forever. Rees-Mogg should not be allowed on to slag off the BBC on the BBC again. They've all been discredited. They had their moment in the sun and blew it completely. Now, it won't work like that because these people have more power and have more access to uh, media outlets than a lot of their critics. But it is the almost logical consequence of their vision of Brexit and it has been a catastrophe for them Brexit consequences still being played out now look obviously I could carry on for ages but I'm not going to because um, I'm worried it's all going to date and anyway we've got brilliant questions from all of you so let's get going with those questions Now, by the way, before um, I go any further, can I just say, to make your points, ask questions, uh, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. And I'm going to begin, if it's okay with all of you, uh, I've had loads uh, about the Truss drama, or shall we call it now the Truss Hunt drama, this new double act as Quatang leaves the political stage. It's like it's getting like Hamlet, isn't it, with political corpses all over the place? So, I'm going to begin uh, with questions on other subjects. Obviously, it's all interconnected because everything connects in politics. Um, but, uh, some questions on uh, something. Yeah, do you remember last week I was talking about my concerns about the power of the markets in inverted uh, comments, particularly with reference to the next Labour government? Uh, Labour governments are tormented, or can be, by the markets. Harold Wilson never got over the devaluation in 1967, and in a way Attlee didn't. They had to devalue in 1949, and Major from the Tory side didn't really recover from falling out of the ERM, which was a sterling crisis. These bloody markets are so powerful. You know, uh, people have been commenting, yes, Jeremy Hunt is the most powerful figure in the government now, but it's the markets telling him what to do. Um, And I think this is, in some respects, disturbing. However, William Morris makes a good point. He says, you've mentioned several times the unelected nature of the markets that exert pressure on the UK government. I find this jarring. The UK has rapidly growing debts of how much? Two trillion or so borrowed from the market. And it relies on foreign money to the tune of many billions annually. When we're in such a position, what does unelected even mean? William adds, by the way, I'm listening from Ecuador, usually while completely unproductively walking the dog. And I've got a photo of William with his dog. Um, I mean, it was a great email because it looks great there in Ecuador, William. What are you doing in there? Great to hear your unproductive part of the anti-growth coalition, which now includes Jeremy Hunt and all that lot to uh, in with the... Uh, growth coalition. Oh, it's, it's too mad. Let's not go there. Uh, yeah, no, I know, William, I know that if a country borrows and it's part of this whole complex issue over sovereignty, no country is a kind of island to itself, wholly sovereign, unless you want to become, you know, like North Korea or something. It was one of the myths of Brexit that somehow the Westminster Parliament must be wholly powerful as if there are no interconnected worlds out there. And and one of them, of course, if you borrow a lot, is the markets. And of course, you've got to placate them. But I'm very conscious that markets can misread as well. You know, in the mid-70s, the markets went haywire. And as Dennis Healy, the then Chancellor, wrote subsequently, actually, uh, the amount of borrowing that was required was not as high as many people expected, but they had to act to reassure the markets. And the bar is set very high with Labour governments. There's an instinctive wariness that they can't run an economy uh, in the markets. So that's a kind of, but you're absolutely right. Part of the mythology of mighty Britain is, of course, it's borrowing money. And and borrowing money is not necessarily a bad thing. The bloody coalition in 2010 should have borrowed more money. The interest rates were at virtually naught for governments then. They could have sorted so much out in that period. But your point is a valid one. And it explains and I think legitimises the new Labour caution in the early years. They had to show the markets first that they could govern without disturbing all the market's kind of instincts and prejudices and then they had the space to be a bit bolder so yeah fair point william uh, but i still i still think it's one of proportionality sometimes uh with the markets Jonathan Burroughs puts forward on this kind of same theme. So what can a Labour government do in the context of all of this? This is what he says would be radical. Establish majority state-owned, publicly traded multinational companies to run energy, water, rail and any other natural monopolies. Yeah, well, I think Keir Starmer's uh, proposed something like that with uh, energy and rail. Devolved many of the functions of national government to new autonomous administrative regions, which are also represented in a reformed second chamber or Senate of the regions. Sounds if Gordon Brown is looking into this for Labour, might be proposing something along those lives, Jonathan, lines. And Jonathan says move the Parliament to Manchester. They are all quite, quite radical ideas. Some of them wouldn't cost that much uh, money. Certainly your last two wouldn't, Jonathan. I, I put them out there uh the electoral reform special for all of us on the cooperative coming soon and of course that can take in other issues such as those you propose just in 10 seconds your second one about autonomy for the regions it's quite difficult to pull off when some regions are better off than others are you going to accept that inequality uh between regions or do you want the treasury centrally to provide money for some of the poorer regions, in which case the Treasury has an input, inevitably and rightly, into how that money is spent, at which point the region cease to become autonomous. Quite complicated. Helen Gordon, the baker. haven't heard from Helen the baker for some time. Uh, She gave me some some bread uh, when she came to King's Place uh, for the Rock and Roll Politics, and I, I still think about that bread, Helen. Anyway, her view on what Labour can do is both to highlight the reality that the majority of people are now facing, uh, name it, and make costed commitments like the famous Blair pledge card. Although, Helen, I have to say the pledge card, the costs were tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, but maybe you have the same thing in mind. Um, Uh, make people feel safer with more visible and better policing, transforming the NHS and not just tinkering with the existing system, create a social care system. See, I I agree with you, but they are not small cost items. Uh, The Labour Pledge card, as you know, in 97, was sort of uh, an additional three school places for a primary school in Carlisle uh, kind of thing. You know, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. It was not risky with uh, implicit... Uh, public spending commitments. Uh, But Helen Lads, it's very hard to do, but it is what Labour needs to do in order to be credible. Yeah, I agree. How you do it in opposition, we will explore in another episode. Uh, But I think the scale of what's required is so big, you cannot do that tiny incrementalism uh, that marked the 97 approach. We're closer to the early uh, 70s in some respects. Very interesting. I'm doing something about the barber boom, Heath's Chancellor, in 73, which ended up being completely reversed with him having to announce a load of spending cuts. I mean, the parallels, this is much worse, what's happened to Truss, but there are some parallels. There are very few parallels with the build-up to the 97 election, and yet I think that's where the lessons are being applied Emma Burnell, who incidentally has got a great play out at the moment, Uh, it's sold out uh, in North London. It's based around the selection process for a candidate, uh, a Labour candidate, and um, all the political dramas and human dramas involved in that. And I wasn't able to go because it was sold out last time. But uh, Emma got in touch with me. I think it's back on in November in London. Next week, I'll find, I can't remember its name offhand. It's probably sold out again. But anyway, uh, it's an amazing thing to do when you're involved in politics to write a play. I just don't know how she's done it. Emma says, I enjoyed uh, the uh, Patreon special on the poll tax, which I listened to walking around Leighton in East London. I would also like to offer my skills, such as they are, as writer-in-residence for the cooperative. You have to have roses as well as all the bread-making. There we go, we've got a playwright. I have a question about government disasters. Why do they all seem to come one after the other? Do governments just get tired and or complacent so they become unable to think properly about serious consequences, Uh, run out of obvious things to do so reach for the more risky ones, which statistically are more likely to end badly? Or is this just a perception bias on the part of voters? They actually cock up constantly, but we go off them. And so get less willing to overlook each small thing. Yeah, uh, uh, really interesting, isn't it? I think it's a combination of the last two. There is no doubt um, perceptions of a government change. So if voters decide they like uh, a prime minister and a government, a prime minister can do things and get away with things left, right and centre that they cannot do when they're unpopular. It's one of the reasons why trust is so uh, in, in such deep trouble. I mean, even if she, I don't know, saved the world, people would say, oh, this is a disaster area, because people have decided and view a leader through that prism. So I think that is one reason. But it is also about energy, momentum, direction. Now, trust has lost all those in four weeks. But normally, a government in its early years has that, even if it's... Um, the wrong direction and the wrong sense of momentum momentum in itself is an asset and i certainly think that applies to the thatcher government i mean we could disagree with the early economic policy making and some of the other reforms but they had they were done in a period when she was popular when the opposition was unpopular on the whole and they certainly had a sense of purpose and momentum But what was so interesting for me researching that bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers was the degree to which she had become casual about policymaking. Um, So for those of you who haven't subscribed yet, but you should do if you don't mind. After the 87 election, another landslide. She was in a position to do what she wanted, a huge electoral triumph. She got Nicholas Ridley, her favourite minister, as Environment Secretary, to do the poll tax, disaster, water privatisation, not properly thought through, disaster, and a housing revolution, self-proclaimed, which hadn't been thought through and involved no additional housing, a housing revolution without housing. And that was, I think, precisely for the reasons, Emma, that you outlined. Anyway, look, good luck with the next run of your play, Thank you. Uh, Joe Ruffles. Joe wonders whether, looking back at that mini budget drama, could uh, the two of them, Truss and Kwarteng, have put something close to their original plan in place with more finesse in a way that wouldn't have resulted in the allergic reaction of the markets? Much of what was in the fiscal event had already been so-called, had already been previewed in the leadership hustings. While I don't personally support it, I do wonder if a more mature and thoughtful style of presentation might have been less traumatic. I, I doubt it, Joe. And a lot of it wasn't trailed, actually. She did in very broad terms say she wanted to break with economic consensus. She pledged to um, reverse the national insurance rise. Um, but quite a lot of the stuff, uh, other stuff wasn't uh, trailed specifically. Sure, they should have had the OBR reporting with it, but if the OBR had reported, it would have said this leaves a £70 billion black hole, in which case the markets would have gone bonkers. They weren't planning to make big spending cuts. They thought they could borrow and just do it that way. So I think it's quite hard to see a way in which it could have been done that saved them, frankly. Thank you very much, Em, for your other points. Matthew Ratcliffe, who's in Cambridge, but from uh, the fastest counting seat in the UK, Sunderland, as in always the first to declare in a general election. I recently started listening to rock and roll politics as well as a number of old episodes. Oh, that's great. Really enjoying it. And the questions from the collective. Great. Well, you've now joined that part of the collective, Matthew. I've been looking for a good politics podcast. Oh, well, pleased you found one. His question is: Labour still too London centric? The PLP and members—is this a problem for them? No, I don't think it is, Matthew. I know mean, I'm very conscious of speaking to somebody from Sunderland, but there we are. Talk about Sunderland—you've got uh, Sunderland's got a prominent shadow cabinet member, Bridget Phillipson. You know, it's this great. Myth that has come through, you know, oh, Keir Starmer, uh, Boris, uh, Keir, a uh, lawyer from Islington. He's not even from Islington. Boris Johnson was from Islington. That they're all from North London. Lisa Nandy, you know, Angela Rayner. So I don't think it is the case, actually, Matthew. And now with the mayors, you have other platforms. Andy Burnham in Manchester, Liverpool mayor, Bristol. You know, so. No, I I think they have got problems and challenges, even with that 30-point poll lead, Matthew. I really don't think that's one of them. And in fact, one of the things I think Islam should do is stress the team, uh, because the team is very varied in terms of where they come from, women, uh, and, and very different characters in that team. Anyway, thank you for what you say about the podcast. Sarah uh, has written, uh, Sarah, you didn't put your surname down. and I couldn't tell from the email. I think you are a regular uh, emailer because I kind of recognize the email. But anyway, so I'm not sure which one. Uh, she notes that uh, Truss and Hunt are now members of the anti-growth coalition. Yeah, exactly. Although she condemned in her party conference speech as anti-growth, those around the economic consensus. She's joined up. She's a leading member. I wondered a few weeks ago if the mini-budget would be a trust poll tax leading to her downfall. I think we can say that she's now on the brink of emulating her hero, Margaret Thatcher, on that front. Yeah, she is. Yeah, and the poll tax definitely played a part in the fall of Thatcher. It wasn't the only reason. And this, that mini-budget, is a much bigger cock-up than the poll tax. And that's saying quite a lot for those of you who've listened to the poll tax one. Thank you very much. Andrew Bimson from Doncaster. Do you think that Liz Chuss has any chance of avoiding becoming the briefest serving Prime Minister? The record low is held by George Canning with 119 days in 1827. By my calculation, she will have to serve until the 4th of January 2023 to exceed this. Andrew, I'm not going to make predictions because they can date or prove wrong, but I thank you for that information. It's out there. If she goes before the 4th of January, 2023, she has beaten George Canning in that unglamorous role as the shortest serving prime minister. Not one many will want. Craig Beveridge says, uh, love the podcast, thank you. Keeps me sane when uh, politics are so bonkers. Yeah, Craig, if I sound sane, I'm not, it's an act. I'm not, I'm not calm. I I know I sound calm because I think it's boring just hearing people angry you know because it's all predictable anger it's all bonkers it makes me cross so it's an act but we're all yeah i'm pleased it calms you down craig uh my question is with the failure of the mini budget and hunt brought in as chancellor he's regarded as pro-remain are we now seeing control uh, seeing the end of the extreme pro-brexit side of the conservative party Now they appear to be losing control of the party. I think this is an interesting twist, as I said in my opening thoughts. They got their way, the hard Brexiteers. They always prevail in the Tory party and therefore the country, because England tends to vote Conservative. And the pinnacle for them really was that mini-budget. They didn't like the tax and spend of Johnson, so here they had their dream, this low-tax thing, which they all hailed. They're running away from it now. Yeah, I think it could be a pinnacle for them, but I still think we could be moving to a smaller state at a point where the state needs to be more active as a way of delivering growth. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Kathy Mears, I've long thought that Jeremy Hunt was playing a long game back to power. Now he's found his moment as an ostensibly safe pair of hands. He plays lip service to the growth agenda, but his politics were of austerity and small statism. Yeah, he's very much a product of the um, Cameron Osborne school of thinking, which is why I think, you know, that we will have um, a small state, uh, a small state, a bit smaller. It's very hard in a pre-election period to do public spending cuts uh, because we need a decent health service we haven't got one we need one and you can't do that uh, just by reform in inverted commas or technology in inverted commas that's where we are kind of moving towards the kind of smaller state and a uh, kind of period of austerity but as say in a pre-election period hard to deliver Peter Somner wonders, Hunt is now unassailable and can do and say whatever he likes. He's Chancellor and has the main job of bringing about stability. He might have modest success in this. As MPs cast around for a crownable replacement for Truss, is he now the obvious choice? He gets the job, dumps the more ideological, toxic and incompetent ministers, mog Braverman, etc., appoints a broader-based cabinet, bringing in recent ex-ministers. At least that reduces the Tory slaughter in the coming election. And it means also that Labour and Keir Starmer should not be too complacent. I don't think they will be complacent, uh, Peter. Uh, th- they've lost so many elections in a row. Um, complacency is rarely the problem for Labour. It's, a caution is, actually. I can see that as one uh, scenario. As I say, the problem is Sunak would like it as well, and so would one or two others. So how does Hunt move from the Treasury? He will have to be publicly loyal to Liz Truss. Now he's accepted her offer of the chancellorship, and he's the most powerful figure in this government. So he's become linked to this government. But I can see it would feel, Peter, if he were to become Prime Minister, almost like a change of government again, and that route then might become possible for him. But it would be, it would be pretty stormy. The sackings uh, and the isolation of that so powerful wing of the parliamentary party, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are no clear routes through this. Now, uh, I'm going to stop in a minute because I'm slightly worried that everything that we say and do is going to kind of date um, in this bizarre, fast-moving situation. So when I do the live shows you just have to check everything a minute before you go on stage and recalibrate everything. Um, uh, so I'm going to summarize very quickly some other brilliant questions. I'm sorry, I'm not going to get through them all. Uh, there's been hundreds, I'd say, many of them on the truss era, but keep them coming because I read them all and it kind of shapes the thoughts. And uh, anyway, but Valentina Burgess, Liz Truss has practically no credibility with anyone. Can cabinet discipline be enforced? Uh, she points out that she Liz Truss is no Jim Callaghan, who... Uh, managed rather brilliantly to manage his cabinet in economic turmoil in the late 70s? Good question, Valentina. The answer is no. I don't think she's in a strong enough position to enforce cabinet unity and we saw that during the party conference. Sean uh, Bruge, is it, Sean, uh, your surname? Have all the best prime ministers started life as leader of the opposition? Recent events suggest this, but not sure of the historical context. Being leader of the opposition is good training for elements of being prime minister, not policy implementation, but uh, managing party, managing the front bench, managing the media and getting a sense of the constraints of power, the thing that Liz Truss and, to an extent, Boris Johnson, had no idea about when they became Prime Minister. A brilliant question, actually. Jonathan Brooks, greetings from Dordogne, where I listen to your podcast while walking the dog. I'm envious, Jonathan. I've already got a vision of you in the Dordogne. And, uh, yeah. Uh, He wonders whether the One Nation Tories will now mount a comeback from here. It depends what you mean, Jonathan, by One Nation Tories. Um, There is a group of them, uh, Andrew Mitchell and others, who are in a very different place from Liz Truss. Rishi Sunak, of course, is not so much One Nation. He is a Thatcherite, so is Jeremy Hunt. So let's see whether they can become more One Nation-ish. Clearly, Jeremy Hunt is uh, in an incredibly powerful position to redefine, the Tory party, frankly, Um, but in what a context. As Peter Landers writes, politics, exclamation mark. Pleased to join the patron class of uh, rock and roll politics. Oh, thank you, Peter. I think it's a sound investment. Uh, Peter, it's one of the few safe investments you can make uh, in the current climate. He says, Peter, Brexit shouldn't be reversed. However, an incoming Labour government should seek to join the single market. I agree. I think they might have to to get growth. Forge a new customs union with the EU. Yep, good idea. Make it easier for people to go on a holiday without being fingerprinted every time they enter the EU. Uh, In fact, Labour should seek to have effectively the sort of soft Brexit that Theresa May could have created uh, had she not drawn artificial red lines. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And we can rejoin Europol, Erasmus, and so on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Peter, I, I think they can't say it in advance of the election, but they will need to move closer a Labour government to Europe than they are currently saying publicly in order to get economic growth. Laundry Joe, who does his laundry, famously, while listening, Uh, In light of the decision to sack the Chancellor, please may you confirm that you're not paying the Conservative Party to ensure that there is always a lot to talk about each week. Yeah, uh, I say it every week, don't I? There's a lot to cram in in our time together. And each week I think there is a lot to cram in in our time together.
0: Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Jesse Young in Washington. He just finished reading Gordon, the book I wrote on Gordon Brown whatever it takes. God Jesse I wrote that just when he had finished becoming prime minister because I thought there would be many takes from the sort of Tony Blair perspective but I thought it'd be interesting to explore it from his uh his kind of evolution through that period. Astonishing period. He says this current government and much of its party were elected in 2010 or later and never known opposition. They assume that continued regicide or their, of their leaders won't cost them their presence in government. This cycle seems to consume many governments around the 11th or 12th year. Yeah, that's similar, uh, Jesse, to Emma's question. Government governing parties do become Tired, and have won so many elections they feel they almost have a right to sort of be insurrectionary but the parliamentary Tory party changed in the 90s you know they never came to terms with the regicide of Margaret Thatcher and they discovered a capacity to rebel like no other parliamentary party in the 1990s over Maastricht and actually quite enjoyed it they quite enjoyed organizing against uh, John Major and going into the studios and becoming sort of quite famous as media figures and on it has gone but you're right it's partly about the exhaustion of the governing party look uh, I'm going to go now we've got so I've got got to catch up to see what's happening as we all have Um, but thank you for tuning in and yeah if you could leave a review i say this sometimes then people email me and say we can only leave a review on certain platforms obviously you can if you listen via the uh, iphone it it's it really helps but only leave it if you like it uh you know and and and, and could say something nice because then apparently it reaches other people and our cooperative grows and grows and before I go, I want to, this is going to happen regularly, I want to uh, name check some of the Patreon subscribers uh, because it is fantastic and it makes it possible for me to do this podcast with the great podmasters who have turned our cooperative from, I don't know, what. how should we call it in its early days? Uh, the, the co-op and it's now John Lewis, something, something like that, he says. Uh, tentatively, uh, So thank you at Podmasters. Uh, and uh, the Patreon subscribers I want to thank this week are Linda Holloway, Fraser Gibb, David O'Leary, Gary Furze, Ian Smith, Natasha Durkin, Owen O'Daly and Colin uh, Hawling. Is that how you pronounce it, Colin? Anyway, thank you all. More names to come. And uh, yeah, I hope you as they enjoyed that kind of reflection on another cock up well before the mini budget, the poll tax and more to come next month yeah that's it i say hope to see some of you at king's place at the rope tackle and now the great market theater in brighton it's not old it's just called the old market theater it's a wonderful theater i'm really looking forward to that Um, and the links to tickets will be on the blurb here who knows where we will be when we uh, gather together again next week This is a fast-moving, multi-layered, as I said at the beginning, almost cinematic drama. And as I can't get out of my mind, the cinematic image of Hunt and Truss at Chequers, with Hunt saying, right, we're going to dump all that you have believed in, and your pitch for the leadership and your early weeks as Prime Minister. Weird, weird politics. And with many, many, many consequences which we all need to explore in our time together in the coming weeks thanks so much for listening have a good week keep following the twists and turns bye